Romans chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human who does, the, who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, which has been given to us in your scriptures. Thank you for being truthful about who you are and about who we are. Father, may your Holy Spirit just drill the tr uh, those truths deeper within us today, Lord. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, I just pray that you would be glorified in your church and in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul began his letter to the Romans by first by introducing himself and then by commending the believers for their faith, which he said was known throughout the world. He next stated that what he wanted to do is he wanted to come to Rome to preach the gospel to them because in preaching the gospel to them that their faith would be built up and not just their faith, but also his as well. And he begins doing that very thing in chapter 1, right after his thesis statement, which is found in verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Beginning in the next verse, verse 18, he begins to preach the gospel to these who he's identified as saints, the very gospel that he would preach to them in person when he showed up in Rome, the very gospel that he said would build them up and him in the faith. The first three chapters of the book of Romans, though, is a condemnation of man in his sin. We might think that it's strange that Paul would spend so much time drilling down into the sinful nature of men. Especially since he's writing to people that according to him, and by his own admission, they had demonstrated true faith to Christ. And there's many within Christianity, even within, maybe within this body, who don't see this as a presentation of the gospel. Or they may think that it's just plain unkind. Paul didn't think that way. Or some people will say, well, I'll take a little bit of sin, but, you know, I want your preacher to hurry up and get to the good part, get to the good news, get to the benefits of being in Christ. There's a misconception among many people who claim Christ as their Savior. We think that once we've made a profession of faith, that our sins are gone. And in a sense, that is true. But, and this is a big but, we are still sinners. Every one of us. Sanctified sinners, yes. Regenerated sinners, most assuredly. But still, at our core, we are sinners nonetheless. And among us, there are those who are truly not regenerate yet. They've made a false profession of faith. They aren't of the elect, at least not yet. And finally, we who are the righteousness of God, we need the truth of the gospel told to us. Who God is and who we are. And we need, to, we need it told to us over and over again. Because if we don't, we're prone to become self-righteous, thinking that we've got it all figured out. We've got this faith thing done. We'll stop praying. We'll stop reading the Bible. We'll stop relying on Christ. But Paul never moved from the reality that at his core, he was a sinner. It was who he was. And it was that truth that drove him to the Father. And he knew that at his very worst, when he was at his very worst, it was then that Christ saved him from the wrath of his father. So we shouldn't find the preaching of the gospel to those we know are saints to be strange or even condescending. We need to hear the truth of the gospel. Not only will it drive us back to reality who we are, but it will build us up in our faith. So how does that happen? How does the preaching of the gospel build us up in the faith? It happens this way. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God to us as it puts on full display the filthy rags of our righteousness as a banner. And then, up against that, it radiates the amazing kindness of God to save us. He has taken away our sins, and he has cast them as far 
from the east is from the west. He hasn't whitewashed our sins. He's not overlooked our sins. He's paid for our sins with his own blood. This is the faithfulness of God to those who he set his love upon. The second reason we should preach the gospel is that it will build up the faith, our faith, as we preach it. This is one of the reasons why we're commanded to preach the gospel. Not just Josh or Bob or Mark or me, but all of us were commanded to preach the gospel. The reason is because when we preach the gospel to others, it's really ourselves primarily where we're preaching it to. And we preach the gospel, we take the words that we know in our head and we drive them down the longest road of all humanity, from our head to our heart. To preach the gospel correctly is to know the truth of God and man, and then be able to articulate it to others. It's to have read scripture, wrestled with scripture, and then allowed scripture to have dominion over our lives. Doing this will build up every person in our faith, every one of us, as we begin to cognitively and emotionally own the truth that we believe. We need to preach the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. Paul began preaching the gospel by elevating God in his righteousness, as opposed to men in our unrighteousness. And then, as I said, he takes a quick flyby over our sin, three chapters worth. Today, I'm going to focus on verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. I've entitled this sermon, A Cursed Treasure. It seems that buried treasure is one of those things that every one of us has some interest in. We may not be going looking for a sunken ship or go to a deserted island looking for pirate treasure, but every one of us, when we go through an old cabinet or an old barn, when we're going through that stuff, we're always thinking, man, there's got to be something in here. There's got to be something of value. At least I know this was the case when I was going through the tons and tons and tons of scrap of my grandpa's property I mean, why else would you say all that stuff? In our verses today, Paul tells us of the greatest of all treasures, except this one is not buried, but it is hidden in plain sight. The treasure is the riches of God that are poured out on his creation. Paul began preaching the gospel by speaking of sin in a very general way in chapter 1. He now takes a different tact and moves from the plural indictment against all men and focuses on a single type of man, the religious. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. The reality is, once again, he's addressing every one of us, because all men are religious in some form or fashion. And all men judge, even those that say that they don't. They do. We all evaluate each other. Paul is speaking about a more specific kind of judgment, though. He's speaking about the propensity that we have to judge the actions of other people. We judge to either condemn or commend them. And when we condemn the sin of murder, we're right in doing so. But in judging those that commit murder, we condemn ourselves, for we ourselves do the very same sin. Now, we may not actually pull the trigger or use the knife, but 
we think nothing of harboring malice in our heart towards our brothers and sisters. This is part and parcel with the sinful state of man. We have the knowledge of right and wrong. We have a moral compass that points us back to the created, being created in the image of God. But we've completely corrupted ourselves. We're able to say that murder is wrong, but we think of nothing of harboring ill will towards others. We are no longer righteous. Paul uses this truth to reveal to us the vast gulf between God and man. There is an innate understanding within us that compels us towards justice, but we're told that every time that we judge, even when we judge rightly, we pass judgment on ourselves. What's worse is that we actually think at times that because we do pass judgment on sin, because we're willing to call out sin, that our own hidden, trivialized sins will be overlooked. This is the religious man that Paul was addressing. He was the Jew who looked down his nose on the pagans who worshipped idols. But the reality is, is that religious Jew was an idolater himself because he had taken God and made an image out of him. He had taken the truth of God and buried it under a mountain of half-truths and rules and regulations and man-made traditions. And in doing so, he became an idolater himself and presumed on the kindness of God. We know that God judges rightly. And his right and righteous judgment is the wrath that he has revealed from heaven on all his creation. And there are many who say that they can't wait for the last trumpet to sound in order that the wrong, that all wrongs will finally be made right, who say that they can't wait until the Lord returns to exact the final punishment on sinners who refuse to bend the knee to them. To you, to that person, I would quote Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. What will it be to you? The day of the Lord will not be darkness, or will be darkness and not light. I say that because there's a subtle warning in these verses. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? The question that Paul is asking here begins rhetorically in asking if this religious person presumes. Whoever this person is, he assumes something about God. We have a similar story happening in the Gospels. There was a rich young ruler who came to Christ. And he asked him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, keep the commandments of God. Something that this young man said, most assuredly, I have done. So Jesus told him, sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. The story ends with a rich young ruler walking away from Christ. The rich young ruler assumed that he had the right to inherit eternal life. He had no doubt in his mind that he was in the family of God, that while others may have been sinners, that wasn't him. And you may say, well, it's no wonder because he was a Jew. He was an Israelite. And yet, God tells us in Romans 9, 6, that all of, our, of, all of Israel is not truly Israel. Many today have the same similar mindset that the rich young ruler had. They think they have the right to inherit because their parents took them to church or because they give money 
to a local congregation, or because they're a deacon, or because they've walked an aisle and repeated a prayer. They presume on God. They, um, the thing that causes them to think that things were all good is the ease of their life. It was this way for the rich young ruler. He took a look at it, all the material possession he had, how all his sheep and goats, they always gave twins, how everything just seemed to come together. And he said, I'm blessed by God. God's happy with me. Isn't this the same thing that we see within American church culture? God must be pleased with me. Look how big the congregation is. He must be pleased with me. Have you seen my new house? Man, I must be doing right by God. Have you seen my new car? My business just keeps flourishing. My kids, man, they're all healthy and very, very obedient. God must be so pleased with me. If we're honest with ourselves, every one of us thinks this way. We think that if things go well, if we have a lot of stuff, if our kids are doing good, it's all because God is happy with our performance. We say, or at least think in our minds, that if something is easy, that it's of God. If something is hard, if something does not go the way we plan, then obviously we are outside of the will of God. That is not correct thinking. We presume on the riches of God's kindness. And if we're really honest, though, we would step back and see that the richest men in the world, those that have all the power and prestige, they aren't Christians. They don't, claim, they don't claim Christ as Lord. We presume God to be something that he's not. We presume that he desires us to have an easy life instead of a meaningful one. We presume that because he's a loving father, that cancer will never afflict us. We presume that he would never have us evicted, that he would never have us go bankrupt, that he would never have us jailed, and he would most certainly never have us hated. We presume that he is not a good God, but a pacifistic enabler. We presume that his kindness is riches, not that his riches are his kindness, shown through his forbearance and patience towards us. But the Bible tells us something differently, though. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The writer of Hebrews picked up the same thing in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to turn there real fast. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Charles Spurgeon said once, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the, bat, on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experiences to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Now, we in American culture, church, know very well the, uh, the part of the verse that says his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. However, we have a bad understanding of what that kindness of God is. His kindness, forbearance, and patience are the opposite side of the coin of his wrath. They are the visible evidence of him through his creation. They are the evidence that will stand against us because even though we have been given them, we deny God and worship the creature or gift rather than the creator and giver. So what does Paul mean when he says, uses words kindness, forbearance, patience? Well, the word kindness seems simple enough to understand. But the problem is, is that we define kindness in the same way we define compassion, favor, and pity. Psalms 145.9 says that God's kindness can be understood in this way. Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. We Christians refer to this as common grace. This is the goodness of God to all humans in providing life, this earth to live on, air to breathe, food, shelter from the elements, and on top of that, he provides love, health, intellect, abilities. These are all the common grace of God in his kindness to humans. However, there's another special kind of um, kindness, a more specific kindness that is extended only to those that he has set his love on through his son. We're told of this kindness in Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul, said that kind, Paul saw that the kindness of God was a two-edged sword. On one hand, the kindness of God towards all humans is for the most part nothing more than a cursed treasure. They're storing up wrath towards them on the final day. And the other edge of the sword is kindness of God shown to his elect through his salvation, which becomes our treasure. He says as much in Romans 11:22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not a whip to drive us to repentance, nor is it to be seen as a beggar trying to coerce or even beg people, anybody, please accept me. No, his kindness is meant to lead us. It's meant to be the light that shines the path to him as we acknowledge him as the God and creator of all things. This is what is meant when Paul says that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And the repentance that Paul is talking about is specifically the repenting of worshiping of idols that he speaks about in chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. So what about forbearance? Well, Webster defines forbearance as the refraining of the enforcement of something that is due. Okay, that'll work in human realm, but not so much for God. We see God's forbearance 
um, demonstrated to us in Genesis 15, 16, when he tells Abraham that his children will once again return to the land in four generations because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God exiled his children for 400 years. He put them into slavery. And for the Amorites, those that would be wiped out for 400 years, he gave them time. He gave them comfort. He gave them ease. He gave them wealth and health. Again, Isaiah 48, 9, God tells us that because of his forbearance, he has delayed his wrath against the children of Israel who rightly deserved it. And for the praise of his name, he restrains it in order that he doesn't cut them off. And a final look at the forbearance of God is shown to us in Romans 3.25. Who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received in faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You may have heard the term or the saying that justice delayed is justice delayed is justice denied. But this never applies to God. In each of the instances I just gave you, God's justice was swift and it was accurate. We may not see it this way. We might even take issue that God sent his children to slavery for 400 years. But if that's the case, it just proves that we don't understand God or man. The Israelites deserved nothing better than slavery. And in fact, God was being kind and merciful to them as he disciplined them through their captivity and then the exodus. And the Amorites... The men, the people who occupied the land, they deserve nothing better than the total annihilation at the hands of the Israelites. If justice, if justice delayed is justice denied, then every human from Adam to my grandkids has had justice denied because God should have struck us dead the very instant that we sinned and then cast our souls into eternal hell. But he hasn't, and he didn't. In his forbearance, he has passed over the sins of those who were of the elect who are looking forward to the coming of Christ. In his forbearance, he has passed over the sins in his, um, of his predestined until the blood of his son becomes efficient in their salvation when he finally regenerates our hearts. And in his forbearance, he's provided love, comfort, happiness, the sun, the moon, the earth, and all of his creation to those who will never, ever willingly confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the kindness that Paul is referring to when he asks if we don't understand that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. The very creation that Paul uses as evidence that God has done all that is needed for man to know that he is the creator of the universe is also the very kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Sadly, though, that's not normally what happens. Instead, Paul is right once again in his indictment against us in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Meaning that for every moment that we're alive, God in his forbearance, in his patience, is pouring out his kindness to us. And for every nanosecond that we don't repent, that kindness becomes a cursed treasure as we store for ourselves more and more wrath 
because we refuse to acknowledge the truth of God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And there is a difference between the two. But there isn't a difference between the rain and the rain. The, um, the same is true concerning the kindness of God on people. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance because we are meant to see his benevolence, his love, his mercy, and blessings poured out into our lives. We are given these things to bring glory and honor to him as we become conduits of his mercy, his love, his benevolence, and to bless those around us. This is a difference between the just and the unjust. The unjust will only see pleasure and selfishness that comes with the blessings. And then he hoards them and he keeps them, thinking that somehow he deserves them, that he's earned them. The gifts become their God and their actions prove it. The just, however, will see that all that God gives them as nothing more than gifts that they can never earn or repay. And for this reason, we'll live with open hands, not trying to hang on to the physical treasure that God gives them, but living to bless others, to bring glory to God through that. Life is a treasure to be sure, but for the unrighteous, it is truly a cursed treasure. Lastly, let's look what is meant concerning the patience of God. When we think of patience, we usually mean something like this. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Historically, it comes from a Latin word, patienta, meaning suffering, which also gives us the word patient, referring to someone who is sick or injured. Um, in our modern context, if you're sick or injured, you really are a patient waiting outside of the door of a doctor's office for hours and hours and hours. These meanings, however, can never hold true to God. God doesn't need to be patient as if he is waiting for something to happen or as if he's tolerating something that he doesn't like or expect. God knows all things and is in control of all things. He doesn't need the human type of patience. When the Bible speaks of the patience of God, it's talking about his long-suffering towards people. In the original Hebrew, the word used for patience is arach, and it's translated to us as long-suffering, but it could, it could accurately be understood as slow to anger. New Testament Greek, the word is makrothumio, and literally means it takes a long time to boil. This is the patience of God. He's slow to anger, and, he's, and it's his patience that enables his sovereign plan of redemption to play out in human history. On that final day, the patience of God will end, and his full wrath will boil over. On that day, God will gather all humans from all eternity and we will open the books and, uh, and, and will judge each according to our works, some to eternal judgment and some to life in the new heaven and earth. This is precisely what the next verse tells us. Um, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. But lest we, can, can, lest we get confused about what Paul is saying here, Let's remember the clear teaching of Scripture. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God alone. But having said that, works are part of our salvation. And they do play a part in our eternal state. 
James says as much in chapter 2 of his epistle, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of, them, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not it also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith in and of itself will not save. Even the demons have faith. They believe that Jesus is Christ, but their faith does them no good at all. Their faith is not a saving faith. They believe that Jesus is Lord, but he's not their Lord. They believe that he's Christ, but he is not their Savior. They see him as an adversary, an enemy, just as all humans outside of saving faith do. When Paul says that, our, that God will render to each according to our works, he's backing up James concerning faith and works. His terminology may be a little bit more flowery when he says that God will render eternal life to those who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality. But he is much more clear and succinct in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so, no, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, these are the same works that Paul is talking about in our verses today. The life of the Christian should be marked by works that point toward the glory of God. They should reflect the honor that is due God and will have internal patience, importance. The first mark of the person who is seeking for the glory of God that Paul lists that will receive eternal life is patience. This is the case because the life of the saint is uh, one that is marked with patient perseverance as we seek for glory and honor and immortality, which is nothing more or less than God himself. The Christian life is not an easy one. It's marked by suffering and setbacks. Thomas Brooks wrote this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The choicest saints are born into trouble as sparks fly upward, Job 5.7. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34.19.
God, who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness, has ordered troubles. Yes, many troubles to come trooping in upon us on every side. Our crosses come seldom singly. They usually come treading upon, our, upon the hills one of another. They are like the April showers. No sooner is one over, but another one comes. And yet, Christians, it is mercy. It is rich mercy that every affliction is not an execution. That every correction is not a damnation. We are supposed to see the contrast between the works of the person who has re been redeemed as different from the works who has not, the person who hasn't. Granted, there are times that those that aren't saying do kind things. But even when they do, they do them for a different reason. They're not done to bring glory to God. They're not done to bring honor to God. And they are certainly not done with an eternal perspective in mind. And quite honestly, they're not getting to, given to us as a litmus test to determine if a person is saved or not. These verses really aren't even about the works that people do. They're all about the righteousness of the wrath that God has, will reveal on the last day as he rightfully condemns those that are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, for the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Prior to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were two classes of people within the human race, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought that because they had been, get, been chosen by God to have the oracles of the law, that they were somehow exempt from the very law that would condemn the Greeks. And the Greeks, they claimed ignorance of the law and thereby exclusion from the penalty of the law. But Paul tells us in verse 12 that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are uh, a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here finally is the determining uh, factor concerning the riches of God and whether or not they're a cursed treasure or have eternal weight of glory. It's all found in Jesus Christ. It was never Paul's desire to compile a list of actions for people to try to do and to attain the righteousness of God. He knew that was idolatry, the same idolatry that both the pagans and the religious Jew practiced. His point in listing these things was always to elevate Christ above all. To those who God has called his own, they would see Jesus Christ as a rose of Sharon, the pearl of great price, the richest of God poured out for them and his only begotten son as they saw their own sinful nature. They would be enthralled by him and not by the mere trechants that he gives them. They would be overwhelmed by his mercy and grace toward them as they recognize that they deserve nothing but the worst in this life and then hell for all eternity. But God, in his riches and kindness, has called us as his own and given us an inheritance that is far and above 
anything we could ever ask or uh, deserve. This is why Paul spends so much time rightly condemning us for our sins. For the elect, we will recognize the truth of who we are. We will recognize the righteousness of God in his wrath. And then we will run to our only hope. Again and again and again and again. These and these alone can obtain the treasure of God without the curse. This is how um, we who are seeking for honor and glory and immortality will see Christ. To us, the hidden treasure of God is revealed. And to us, the treasure of God is not a cursed treasure, but is life and life more abundantly. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for the blessed truth of your word that reveals our sinful nature even after salvation, Lord. That compels us once again to run home, to run to you, our only hope. Father, I pray for any here who do not know you, for having your kindness and your forbearance poured out onto them in their life. They're storing up your wrath because they refuse to bend the knee. Father, call them home. Compel them now to cry out for forgiveness. For salvation is only in you, Lord. You're our only hope. And we want no other. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.